The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden, and our francophone editor, Jeronima. A good afternoon to you both. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Eric. Hey, guys, great to have you both on the show today. Again, we're doing a Week in Review show. We do these when there's just so much going on. We don't want to take a whole show for just one topic because we've got a lot to get through. We've got five topics today that we're going to barrel through. I mean, all of them are worthy of their own show. And what we're going to try and do is just give you a sample of everything that's going on. Lots of consequential things that are in play right now. Kobus, we have been focusing a lot in our daily coverage on the standoff that is getting increasingly serious between China and really the rest of the international development finance community that includes the multilateral development banks. We're going to talk a lot about these MDBs, multilateral development banks. Those are the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Those are the Bretton Woods institutions that are based in Washington. Right now, there is an impasse, a stalemate, whatever you want to call it, between China and these institutions. And that has put a break on all of the debt restructurings that have been underway for the past two years, Zambia going back almost two years now. What's at stake right now is that China has been insistent, and it has not changed its position, that it wants these multilateral development banks, along with commercial creditors, to take what they call haircuts. Haircuts, for those of you not familiar, is the write-down or losses on the loans the same way that other creditors take losses the same way that the China Exim Bank, the same way that the U.S. Exim Bank, any of these multilateral creditors would also take lo- uh, take write-downs and losses on their loans. So far, the multilateral development banks, the World Bank and the IMF, had said, no, they're not going to do it. So we had a number of different issues that kind of played out last weekend at the G20 Finance and Central Bank Leaders uh, Conference meeting that happened in India. And everybody was kind of looking at this meeting as the make or break moment. Would there be a breakthrough on debt? India said it was going to start pushing debt up higher on the G20 agenda after two or three years when the G20 countries talked a great game about debt, but really didn't do anything. This time, India, who was the rotating chair of the G20, said they were going to prioritize it. Let's fast forward to the Monday after this conference. Nothing happened. They couldn't even get a communique out of this conference because they couldn't agree on anything, mostly around the contentious issue of Ukraine. But let's take a listen to what Kristalina Georgieva, who is the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, what she told Bloomberg in response to questions about China and this debt stalemate. They want to see multilateral development banks contributing through grants and highly concessional lending. And that is possible. What is not possible is for the multilateral development banks to take a haircut that could undermine their AAA rating. And I want to be clear why this is not possible. 
because the membership of these institutions relies on them to be able to raise money cheaply and then transfer to them low interest rates. That is what they do. There it is from the IMF head. It is not possible. Let me bring you now to Beijing, where Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning also this week after the Georgieva comments, she responded to a question at the press briefing at the foreign ministry to respond to that in the context of Zambia's uh, debt restructuring process that again has been stalled. Uh, Unfortunately, there was no recording of it, but let me read you what she said. And this is very important, Kobus, because the language that she used in this response on Zambia is identical to what she's talking about with Ethiopia, Ghana, and Sri Lanka. So they are consistent across the board. Here's what she said, quote, it is our belief that finding the best solution to Zambia's debt restructuring requires the understanding, trust, and concerted efforts of all stakeholders. According to the data released by Zambia's Ministry of Finance and National Planning, predominantly Western commercial lenders and multilateral financial institutions account for 70% of Zambia's foreign debt. They need to take up due responsibilities and take stronger actions to relieve Zambia's debt burden. And Kobus, that seems to be the theme that this is not China's problem here. Even though the Paris Club lenders... The IMF, the World Bank, and many others have been putting the burden on the Chinese. The Chinese are turning around and saying, "Uh uh-uh, this isn't up to us, this is on you. What do you think? Well, you know, this is obviously it's a very kind of complicated situation, one that that doesn't only affect these particular crises, but, but affects global development finance as a whole. I think, you know, from, from the way that I understand it, I'm very much not an economist. The Chinese, you know, did quite a lot of, or you know, a relative amount of write-offs and kind of concessions during the, the G20's uh, debt service suspension initiative like during the COVID era. And I think that there's perceptions in Beijing that they're kind of being pushed to the back of the queue, you know, kind of with Western, you know, in the first place, Western-led multilateral institutions like the World Bank being shielded from taking losses, and then the deals with Western private lenders that far outstrip the Chinese in terms of the size of the debt in these countries are kind of left until the the deals with bilateral lenders have been been finished. But, you know, China, as China's bilateral lending grew over the last 10 years, the other bilateral lending from other Paris Club members actually decreased you know so 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of 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 chinese debt then that that end up having to be dealt with first quote unquote you know kind of which means that they that they will then kind of be be forced with the but there's a possibility that they might be forced into 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 losses that would then you know kind of might put them in a in a kind of a worse position than than these kind of western-led institutions so i think that's one of the one of the big things but the other big thing that that's also really important is that the world bank itself and the, the IMF, they all are facing these massive reforms anyway, particularly now But now that the World Bank is as a new leader and that the World Bank is increasingly shifting towards climate-related issues rather than poverty alleviation. So there's going to have to be very large reforms in there. And and one of the things, you know, that, that was interesting for me that Georgieva said was that they can't take haircuts if they endanger the World Bank and IMF's AAA rating. But there are a lot of these suggestions for reforms drifting around, making the point that, that, that A, these reforms are necessary anyway, and B, that there are a set of reforms that can be implemented without endangering the AAA rating. So, you know, so, so that then, whether they're open to, to actually discuss what those would be and whether there is whether there's any kind of maneuverability in that space that remains a, a really important question 
So the IMF and the World Bank both say that they take the haircut on the front end by getting these loans at very, very cheap rates, and that's why they don't want to take them on the back end. That's their logic. I also want to bring to your attention a blog post from our old friend uh, from the show, Jude Moore, who is the former Liberian public works minister and also a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. He wrote a fascinating column on the CGD website called Will China Play Its Part? in addressing African debt distress, and there was one statement that stood out here. It is difficult to imagine how one accommodates those demands without unraveling the entire multilateral development lending model. That is huge. I mean, that's what's at stake here, and that's why in my column on Monday, I said this system is broken beyond repair because I don't get the sense that the people in the development community the people in the West, and most importantly, I don't get the sense that African finance ministries understand what's going on here, that this isn't about Africa or Asia or the developing countries. China has made it abundantly clear that it is willing to let Zambia be roadkill if it needs to in order to win this fight. It will let them hang out to dry because you know what the, what the Chinese could have done at the G20? And I'd like to get your take on this, Giro. What they could have done is said, listen, we're going to make a temporary concession right now. This fight isn't over, but we're going to make a temporary concession in order for Sri Lanka and Zambia to clear through the process. And we're going to allow X, Y, and Z. Something could have been done. But the fact that they are holding the line and they're not budging a bit shows you that they are resolute in taking this fight to the end with the MDBs. There's no indication whatsoever that they're going to move. Giraud, what's your take on all this? I get you, Eric, in terms of what they could have done in terms of concession, but I also kind of understand them because we are in the principle, you know, to, to say that if we make the concession now for Zambia or for Sri Lanka to get, you know, to get a pass and to move forward, who's going to come next? And next is going to be the same argument. It's going to be the same ideas that, you know, we have to, we also have to do something for them because we need to move on. So I think that from the Chinese perspective, it's more of a principle to say we are ready to make that first huge sacrifice, to let them sacrifice, but if it can lead to a change of argument, in change, in change of principles and in change of the way the system works, we going to make it happen because the truth of the matter is once they do that for Zambia and for Sri Lanka we kind of pretty much show that the next country is going to come along it's going to come like you know you did that for Zambia and Sri Lanka why don't you do it for us for me for example for Ethiopia or for I don't know for Ghana or for another country that's going to come along so I get them in a perspective to say okay now let's not make the sacrifice now to avoid just to make another concession down the line but what you say it's right because at the end we are stuck in that situation and the question would just remain what Zambia is going to do what's, what's going to be the solution f uh, uh, going forward because we cannot keep on going and doing what's happening and the way things are, are, are happen now. So the question is, what's the way forward now? So what's interesting also about this is that our China editor, Han Zhen, found a lot of coverage and discussion about this in the Chinese press and among Chinese think tanks. And what's very interesting is that oftentimes the Chinese will have one public-facing line in English to the outside world, and then domestically in Chinese to their own constituencies will say something totally different. We're not seeing that on this debt issue. What we're seeing is exactly word for word, the same thing they're saying in English and in Chinese. 
And the reason why that's troubling in some sense is because the Xi administration now is giving itself no wiggle room out of this. Because if it makes a big concession now, it will look like it's backtracking on the hardline principles that it set down in all of these Xinhua commentaries, Global Times, all the academic policy papers. And even on social media now, I'm seeing all of these pro-China accounts and the China supporters kind of saying the same thing. So again, it's, it's reducing the room for flexibility. They are serious as a heart attack on this. Very quickly, before we move on to our next subject, Kobus, there was an interesting dynamic this week with Ethiopia and also with Ghana. So Ghana had planned to go to Beijing, the Ghanaian finance minister, and on Thursday, we thought he was going to be on his way, leading a high-powered delegation. That was canceled at the last minute. They were brushed back and said they can't come until the end of March, until after the National People's Congress event that gets underway this weekend is done. One would have thought that they would have known this was coming, so it was just a little bit weird. And then this came at the same time when Ghana officially became the second African country in the post-pandemic era to default on some of its eurobond debt. They missed a $40.6 million coupon payment. So that was a milestone. But Ethiopia was very interesting, Kobus, what happened this week, where there was a lot of speculation after a number of high-profile visitors went to Beijing, including the finance minister, the head of the central bank. And then back in Addis Ababa, Zhao Zhiyuan, who is the Chinese ambassador to Addis Ababa, had a meeting with the agriculture minister. Let's first talk about what we thought was going to happen and then what actually happened. Well, what was reported in the Ethiopian press was that the visit is partly kind of aimed at exploring alternative ways of debt relief. And that, you know, the the implication was because Ethiopia has such a large proportion of Chinese debt that they would that that would be the kind of a natural case study for them to start. And there were all of these this kind of ideas that it would be different different kind of resource swaps and like debt swaps and, you know, increasing trade and increasing agricultural kind of engagement and so on. And these would be ways of paying off the the debt in these kind of new innovative ways. And we were like, oh, great, you know, (laughs) it's like, this looks like like it could be promising. And then Bloomberg raised that issue during the foreign ministry press briefing. And Mounding was just like, no, none of that is happening. None of this is official. Like, like basically one, one sentence, like this is all untrue. So, so we'll see what what comes out of that, if anything, probably nothing. But you know, I mean, that doesn't take away the big issue of you know, kind of that uh, is that that we need some kind of innovative way of of dealing with this issue. Otherwise, we're just going to be one stalemate after another. I was kind of excited about the idea of this alternative debt restructuring in terms of using other ways of solving the problem. Is uh, you know, I got carried away with it myself, but just to see how blatant she just shut that down. She said something to the, you know, we've checked into it. Nope, that's not happening. So just if you're keeping track at home, Ethiopia has $28 billion of external public debt. The last count, and we don't have an accurate number on this, but the last count of what China's share of that is $13.7 billion. I think that number has come down a little bit. There have been some repayments on that. Uh, but it's you can see it's a very sizable portion of the external debt. And in Ethiopia, by the way, is the second largest holder of Chinese debt in Africa behind Angola. Okay, let's move to our second topic, and that is French President Emmanuel Macron has embarked on a four-nation tour of Africa. His first stop will be in Gabon for an environmental summit. Then he's going to head to Angola, the Republic of Congo, and 
the Democratic Republic of Congo. He gave a speech earlier this week that laid out the new strategy that France has for Africa, and it was panned as quickly and as passionately as the old strategy was. I mean, this thing did not land well in Africa at all. Let's take a listen. Many would like to push us into a competition, a competition that I believe belongs in the past. This would be falling into a trap set by those who want us to try and show our might. Look, some are coming with their armies and mercenaries. Go and compete with them. I don't believe in this. These are ways of the past where we show our military might and share exclusive ties with certain leaders and believe that economic markets are just ours because we were there first. We'd fight to play centre stage. I think those times are over. So, although Macron did not say the word China by name, there's a lot of speculation in Paris that part of the reason for the trip and part of the urgency for the Elysee Palace to come up with a new strategy and to re-engage Africa is because of the concern that Russia and China are gaining influence and that France's standing on the continent uh, is low and falling. Giraud, you have been following this all week on our French language website, Projet Afrique Chine. Give us your take. Tell us a little bit about what the Francophone African media response was to the speech and also to the visit. So in general, the visit is, uh, I wouldn't say it's welcome in general because France is losing ground in many parts of Africa, especially in West Africa, a country like Mali, Burkina Faso are not really seeing France as a, as a friendly country anymore. It's never been that feeling anyway, but now it's more out there now that France, uh, French army have, have left Burkina Faso, they've left Mali. And I think Macron is coming in a way that let's let's take a hold of the situation because for, for instance another country where we see where there was French present was Centrafrique Republic Centrafrique and where we saw now Wagner being present in Centrafrique so even there France is also worried so when you see that perspective when you see that perspective how France is losing ground and you kind of understand why in Elysee they were trying really to regain ground they're losing or even expanding to new ground to new areas for instance going to Angola trying to you know to, they're going to say they're going to talk about agriculture, but, you know, maybe we, we know that how much uh, total energy is uh, interest in Angola in terms of petrol. But, we know, but in the rest of the trip, it's going to go to the heart of what is called France-Afrique, going to Gabon, going to Congo-Brazzaville, to kind of strengthen France's presence there, because you never know, you have to be sure that things are going to be as they're supposed to be from the French perspective. But in general, Macron visit in Africa is not really welcome because during the presentation of his program, he invited some African musician and popular figures to attend the meeting, but it was not really welcome. Many were just, you know, insulted on social media. They were like, why do you attend that meeting? France is coming with a new colonialism program in Africa. You shouldn't be there. So the feeling in general are not is not really a welcome feeling from taught France. But yet, Macron coming to friendly regime countries, Gabon and Congo-Brazzaville, is kind of being safe. The more sensitive trip for him is going to be in DRC, where he's going to have to deal with the situation of the eastern of DRC, where DRC is in broadly with Rwanda and M23, and people in DRC are not really happy by the fact that how much France has not condemned Rwanda formally, as in taking any sanction against Rwanda, where they took sanction against, against Russia and Ukraine. So people are kind of like, you know, 
know, sensitive. Before recording this, there's people send me some videos from Kinshasa where people wrote on French embassy walls, you know, uh, Macron criminal, Macron assassin, Macron you are complicit with Rwanda and, M- and M23. That just tells you how much his trip in Kinshasa is going to be quite sensitive for him. Yeah. You know, Kobus, it's interesting because the reaction to the speech was so negative uh, throughout Francophone African Twitter and even on Anglophone African Twitter as well. And again, I'm not going to make Twitter the end all be all, but it's just it's an indication as to how some people feel. And, and one of the most interesting reactions to that soundbite, that part of the speech that I played, which is we're not going to compete. And I don't know quite the tone and the undercurrent of what his meaning was and but that's exactly what a lot of people said they want France to do. They want France to compete with China, with Turkey, with the United States, because African countries want choices. They want businesses to compete. They want governments to come up with more innovative ideas. So competition is at the essence of what African governments want and African people want. What they don't want is obviously the arrogance of colonialism, which, again, you heard in his talk, and what's interesting, and I'd like to get your take on this, Cobus, is the fact that Macron in particular, but the French in general, really seem to be struggling with their messaging and their narrative and really abandoning a colonial, post-colonial, kind of paternalistic tone to their engagement with Africa, much more so than other countries that we see. They really don't seem to get it. In, in relation to the competition thing, I read it as Macron kind of, you know, pushing back against against kind of geopolitical, you know, pressure on African countries to choose sides. Because in relation to, to simply the competition itself, like the competition in terms of showing up, he was also berating French companies for not for not kind of being proactive enough in, in African engagement and saying that there's no space for infra, among French companies for lazy companies that don't step up. And the, and that was all happening within, within the context where he was essentially saying that France is hoping to demilitarize their presence in Africa, you know, by closing some of their bases or, or then turning some of their bases into jointly run military academies, quote unquote, that would be jointly run by with African African um, militaries. And at the same time, is trying to, the, you know, kind of he's also saying that, that France's kind of private sector engagement with Africa should, should pick up and that France should show up as a kind of a corporate partner in Africa. So all of that is relatively positive in terms of, you know, kind of that there's been kind of calls in Africa for both of those things to happen. In some ways, I feel a little bit sorry for Macron in the sense that, you know, I think compared to some other European powers, I think France has, has proven itself a lot more amenable to being flexible with working with China, for example, in just kind of more pragmatic ways and in kind of on the project level, in ways that I think like the, the kind of the kind of cooperation that a lot of African governments have also been calling for. But at the same time, I think it's just the it's just very difficult to get away from that kind of like old kind of colonial bearing. You know, there's so much there's so much in Paris that's still kind of like built in into that system, that it ends up kind of like painting a target on his back anyway, even though in in, in some ways, in, in on the kind of pragmatic ways, that like the French have actually are actually relatively progressive in terms of how they deal kind of with other kind of external actors in the continent. 
Eric, if you allow me to complete what Kobe's just said, and it's something for me, I think that we we kind of we tend to lose sight in general in terms of that element of competition. I just thought of it today to realize that when we see friends, those all not only friends but those old colonial power in China, in Africa, you kind of see the interaction and the engagement in Africa. It's kind of re, it's um they address different issues that those countries have. For instance, where friends cannot compete with Chinese companies in terms of investment in many African countries or in terms of construction in those countries, those countries yet, when it comes to their political needs after a very difficult election or when there is political instability, they will not turn to China. They will not turn to Russia. They will turn to France. They will turn to Washington. So it also, it tells you how much the way those countries are, the way they compete or the way they collaborate in Africa may be Upon it, may, it might depend much more on what Africa, those African countries, put on the table, on what condition they create to determine whether or not there is competition or whether or not there is cooperation. But when you in, in the way the situation is presented right now, you see that being France or being China or being Russia, they just serve different purposes for those regimes in Africa. So, what should we look for from the visit in terms of determining if it's going to be a success or a failure, Giro? Uh, we should be looking at if it's the, in terms of the, the narrative first. The narrative is going to be very important because French presidents have, have, have that story, have that history when they come to Africa to make those speeches that, you know, always give people high brows. Like, what's, what did you just say? So it's going to be in terms of the narrative, what to look on in terms of narrative. Second of all, it's going to be if there's going to be any agreement or there any contract signed, especially in a country like Angola, where he says going to talk about agriculture, food. We're going to always to see if there's going to be anything if anything new over there but the the two countries Gabon and Congo is going to be much more safe because it's very much in the heart of the France Africa relations so we're not expecting that much but a last the his last step in, in DRC is going to be the much sensitive one the way it's going to to deal with the situation with the DRC and Rwanda and M23 is going to be the key on how people are going especially in DRC are going to see if his trip was a success or not. But yet, he's presenting himself as not competitive, just going to be a partner. So we're going to see all of that, how it's going to unfold. Kobus, do we run the risk of doing what Jiho is saying, which is focusing on the narrative? That is, remember at the last FOCAC, the Chinese were saying all the right things about increasing trade and investment, $300 billion in two-way trade. Remember, they promised a billion vaccines. They said all the right things. Everybody was like, yeah, this is great. And then after the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, everybody was saying the narrative is on. It's great. But, you know, we really haven't seen much out of the United States in terms of substance on policy, even since the new strategy was unveiled last year. And now we're talking about the French with, you know, their narratives and can they fine-tune it. At what point do people get frustrated with just hearing lots of pretty talk that isn't backed up by anything substantive? Or maybe just focusing on the narrative is where we are right now, and that's an improvement over where we've been. Well, you know, you can you can focus on the narrative earlier than you can really on concrete outcomes, you know, because those t- those tend to come later. Yeah, you know, I, I think that is part of Africa's existential position. You know, it's like a lot of a lot of promising talk, very little little actual action, um, and that you know that that is true for for most of Africa's 
partners and it's true for most of, of the African governments. Um, you know, so so that is unfortunately you know part of the deal. I just noticed it living out here in Southeast Asia that we don't get as much of the flowery talk. We don't hear anything about how Southeast Asia is the future and Southeast Asia's young people are going to dominate. And I just, you know, and we, we never get any of that. What we get <laughs> are billions of dollars in money that's ostensibly meant to counter the Chinese. We get cabinet secretaries from the United States every third Thursday coming through here. We get a lot of substance here in Southeast Asia and in Asia in general. And it's just an interesting contrast. So I'm worried a little bit that all this pretty talk for Africa is cheap because it's Africa. And it's and as you've talked about Kobus on a number of occasions that it's, you know what, they're doing it because they can and possibly because it doesn't matter so much. Giro, go ahead. But because it also comes to the history they have with Africa, in Southeast Asia, the country that's going to, that's going to give a big shock is Japan because of history with, South, with, South, with Southeast Asia country. In Africa, those countries, they, they somehow also need to put forth the narrative because they need to, you know, they have a very difficult story with African country, colonialism and everything. So for them, action, yes, that speaks a lot, but sometimes we also need to put word in front so we have to show that, you know, we mean what we do and everything, it's, it's going to be different. That's why they play a lot of narrative in Africa, because they have a different history. In Southeast Asia, we might see Japan doing a lot of talk, because, you know, they also has to show that, you know, I'm a different player now. Interesting. Okay, well, let's move on to our third topic, and we're going to come to your neighborhood, Kobus. The Russian Defense Ministry on Monday announced that 10 days of joint military exercises with Russia... China and South Africa came to an end. They were known as Operation Mossy 2. Uh, Mossy 1 was the first one. Now we're at Mossy 2. And I am sure that the folks at Durko and the folks in the president's office in Pretoria are thrilled that this is over because this has been a painful 10 days for them getting hit hard by all comers. The Democratic Alliance uh, that's the opposition party in South Africa, as well as the media, civil society groups, the U.S., the U.S. House of Representatives, you name it. They all came down and basically said, South Africa, what were you thinking by giving cover to the Russians and hosting the Russians at the time exactly on the one year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine? So those drills are over. Kobus, I'd like to get your take from one of your think tank colleagues in South Africa, Timothy Walker, maritime project leader and senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in Pretoria, he reflected on the the exercises and why it was particularly egregious this time to have the Russians take part and how it really undermined South Africa's credibility in the global marketplace. One of the major things I think to start thinking about this exercise is not to necessarily compare it with previous ones which have happened with the United States and France last year. I think that would be to draw a, a false equivalence. One of the major factors we always have to bear in mind when thinking about what is happening uh, with South Africa's diplomacy is that Russia is a belligerent state. It is currently engaged in an international armed conflict. Uh, the previous exercises with France and the United States were not held under those kind of conditions. This is a, a situation which, as you say, for, uh, for a year now, um, has been uh, capturing the world's attention and has uh, resulted in several things, a uh, very severe shipping sanction on Russia, for instance. A whole range of signals being sent by the rest of the world that to be seen as um, participating in this kind of exercise sends the wrong signal about what South Africa's policy intentions are. It actually sends very confusing messages. 
confusing messages, Cobus. Nobody really focused on the Chinese and the PLA Navy that was there this year. Everybody was on Russia. Give us your take on what we learned. What are the big takeaways from these past 10 days that occurred with Operation Mosi 2? I guess one of the kind of saving graces, very few of them, was that it wasn't used as an occasion to launch the Zircon hypersonic missile. Like, I think a lot of people were worried that that would be... All hell would have broken loose had that happened. I mean, really, it would have been the end of it, I mean. That it would have been this kind of, like, showcase moment. And and I fully expected the Russians to actually go that way. I, I can imagine the South Africans were, try, like, asking them not to. But, you know, kind of, so, so that, that at least, you know, didn't happen. But... Overall, I think it just kind of reveals that I think South Africa's South African foreign policy is a little bit lost. I think you know, and that um, that South Africa obviously is is you know finding it very hard to really kind of you, you know find an independent course where it isn't as beholden to its uh, you know to its BRICS membership you know as it's been you know at the moment i think it, it just strikes me as another example of of a kind of a of, of a larger south african pattern where you know kind of where there's always really good reasons for things there's always like you know kind of very well articulated kind of like like position setting around around controversial decisions but then the the controversial decisions just end up like putting the country in a really kind of muddled place and you know and and then it becomes a massive kind of like like round of kind of infighting and and self-justification and and back and forth and then they just kind of stumble onto the next disaster you know so so it's all all of it kind of i think just reveals how yeah how kind of lost and muddled i think south african foreign policy is at the moment do you get the sense that this is going to cause any lasting damage to South Africa's relationship with, say, the Europeans and the Americans, or six months from now? Eh, you know. I asked you this in our last show about this, and you were like, yeah, I don't think so. But now that the exercises are over, everybody's gone home, what's your thought on that about lasting damage? I don't think it'll probably cause lasting damage, simply because South Africa, for all its kind of deludedness, is also strategically important. You know, its geographic position makes it important. It has these kind of long, you know, kind of century-long kind of connections with with European powers and, and with the United States. They Those will be you know, kind of resurrectable, you know, kind of if 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 need be. Um, I think in in the what what it actually does do though is it 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 puts further kind of attention on next year's election. But there's already so much attention on next year's election because of the disastrous kind of like power blackouts and and other kind of economic problems and huge corruption. You know, kind of in in South Africa that 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 won't even necessarily feature as a as a, a particular kind of strong issue in that election. But it you know kind of that it just kind of adds another another kind of data point to why this coming election is so important. Okay, just on a quick lighter note, just before we move on, next week is going to be an interesting week at the multiplex movie theaters in South Africa. Uh, the Wandering Earth 2, which is the Chinese blockbuster that's done almost $600 million at the box office in China, is going to be opening in South Africa and as well as Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and Zambia. Zambia will happen on uh, the week of March 17th. Now, this is the first time in a very long time, maybe since Wolf Warrior. And I don't even know if Wolf Warrior actually opened in Africa, but this is one of the first. I don't think Chinese so. Not, not in cinemas. Okay. Well, then this is really one of the first major Chinese movies to open in South Africa. How do you think South Africans will take to a big budget Chinese sci fi movie? 
you know, just simply as someone who's very interested in kind of East Asian driven globalization in the global South, I hope it becomes a hit simply because it would be very interesting if it does. You know, it would be a great like kind of media studies article to write, you know, if it becomes a hit. I, I imagine it won't be a massive hit simply because South African movie audiences, the people who actually go to see movies in cinemas tend to be kind of middle class people who are very plugged into kind of Euro-American entertainment, you know, so, so they like Marvel, they like those kind of things. And I don't know that this is necessarily going to kind of pull people out of their houses to come and watch. But if it does, it'll be interesting. Okay. Well, let's now move on to our final topic of the show today. And Giro, boy, this one is going to be right up your alley. You and I have been having conversations about this all week. And, and really, it, it speaks to a larger conversation about the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But this week, the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, let me be very clear here, because a lot of the African media coverage of these events and things that come out of the House mistakenly say the U.S. government. This is not the U.S. government. This is a one branch of the government and a subset of that. That is, it's a just the House, and it's the Republican side of the House. They held two committee meetings this week. So the House Foreign Affairs Committee held their first session under Republican control. And the title of the meeting was Combating the Generational Challenge of CCP Aggression. CCP, of course, is the Chinese Communist Party. And then there was the inaugural committee meeting of the new select committee on the CCP, that is the name of this group and this committee, they held their first hearing this week, and it was called the Chinese Communist Party's Threat to America. You almost feel like you need a little bit of music under that, you know. <laughs> but what was interesting is that in the discussions, and I listened to it all for you so you wouldn't have to, and it was it was very interesting. And Kobus, I think you would actually find this fascinating because in the space of about five hours, you can get the full litany of every American fear, concern, and critique, and anger about the Chinese. And there was a lot that we heard about the Chinese in Africa specifically. Did we hear the debt trap? Oh, you betcha. Did we hear the fact that they're importing labor? Absolutely. All of the classic oldies were there. So if you really want to get a volume of <laughs> poorly informed lawmakers on what the Chinese are doing in places like Africa and the Global South, these two hearings are the place to go. Again, my ongoing concern of how these legislators talk about China in places like Africa is not that they're being critical. I think there's a lot of room for criticism of the Chinese. It's the fact that in many cases, their arguments are about 10 years out of date and they're using bad information, and their staffs are poorly informed. And the whole discourse in Washington has become so binary, and there is no room for any kind of nuance in it. And so that is, that's my critique of it, not the fact that they're beating up on the Chinese. Sure, whatever, I don't care about that. I just care the fact that so much of it is just really not very intelligent. But let's take a listen now, because a lot of the talk came up about the DRC strategic minerals, and this is specifically related to cobalt. Uh, Giraud, there has been a lot of talk recently in the past three or four weeks about the role of cobalt in the supply chain. Obviously, a lot of people talk about that given the growing popularity of EVs. 
Uh, but at the same time, people are talking a lot about it because there is a new book that's out called Cobalt Red, and it has gotten an enormous amount of traction. Siddharth Kara, who is the author, was on the Joe Rogan show, and his clip on YouTube is up to somewhere about 5 million views. And what his main point is the fact that the artisanal mined cobalt, which accounts for somewhere between 15 and 20% of the cobalt, is being mixed in with the industrial cobalt, and therefore we don't know which is which, and therefore this has prompted this big narrative in Washington about child labor in the cobalt supply chain. Let's take a listen to some comments from Chris Smith, who is a Republican from New Jersey, a longtime critic of China. Uh, also, he's been on the House Foreign Affairs Committee for quite some time and spoken out numerous times about the, the Chinese in Africa and elsewhere. Nowhere in Africa is the CCP's malign impact more egregious than in the DRC. I've been to the DRC, I've been to the mines, I've been to, not to the cobalt mines, but others uh, previously. And I chaired a hearing last Congress on, as part of the, as co-chairman of the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission, on the issue of cobalt. And the fact that something on the order of 35,000 children, forced labor for children, many of whom get sick, some die, uh, they don't have any protective equipment. They shouldn't be subjected to child labor anyway. And then the adults, some, something on the order of 200,000, are mining cobalt, all of which goes to China uh, for refinement for batteries. You know, no matter where anybody comes down on EVs, um, you know, they're on the roads, they're everywhere, uh, growing in number. Uh, but the supply chain should in no way be linked uh, to uh, such horrific practices as forcing children into those mines. So this question about children and the artisanal mines in the DRC, again, has been a constant narrative coming out of Washington and the Beltway. Legitimate concern. I don't want to actually diminish the violence and the horror that is the artisanal mining industry in the DRC. However, it's interesting because also this week, a fascinating report came out from Hannah Dreyer, who's an investigative reporter at the New York Times, about child labor in the United States. Now, I want to be very clear about the conversation that we're going to have now. This is not about whataboutism. Well, there is child labor in the DRC and there's child labor in the U.S., so therefore everything's equal. No, that's not it at all. But I want to kind of set up the fact that there is a context here and it affects the tone and the narrative that you've been hearing from Giraud and, and Kobestir. So this was a report that came out, alone and exploited migrant children work brutal jobs across the U.S. These are migrant children who are coming in from Mexico and other Central American countries. They are registered with the government and they are coming in solo and then being placed in homes where the guardians are not looking after them and they're being forced to work. What Hannah found in her reporting was absolutely just shocking. As many as 300,000 children are in this situation. We're talking elementary, middle school, and, and low teens. And here is the reaction in the report from MSNBC anchor Jose Diaz-Barlet, who gives you a sense of what this story is about. There's growing outrage after a New York Times investigation which found that many migrant children who come to the U.S. without their parents here are working 12-hour shifts or more 
at factories, even though it violates child labor laws. The Times found that, quote, migrant child labor benefits both under-the-table operations and global corporations. In Los Angeles, children stitch Made in America tags into J. Crew shirts. They bake dinner rolls sold at Walmart and Target. They process milk used in Ben and Jerry's ice cream and help debone chicken sold at Whole Foods. As recently as the fall, middle schoolers made Fruit of the Loom socks in Alabama. In Michigan, children make auto parts used by Ford and General Motors. So, Giraud, this is the conversation you and I had, and it was fascinating. Again, the point here is not to say that because the United States has issues with child labor now that it can't talk about what's going on in the Congo. But the problem is, is that when you have the sanctimonious tone that Chris Smith has from the Hill, and you don't acknowledge that you have the same problem in your own country, and that this is really a problem of global capitalism more than it's a problem of anything else, because I can tell you here in Southeast Asia, the people who are making the Walmart shirts and the Nike shoes are also probably suffering, again, with supply chain issues and children in less than ideal circumstances. So to me, this is really more of a problem of global capitalism than a specific country. But you and I had a lot of in-depth conversations. What's your, you know, your feeling on, again, the, the accusations by Chris Smith, this question of the child labor in the Congo, and then what you thought about the reports coming out of the U.S. about child labor? For me, as you, as you know, my position on the question, it's always about the framing, the context, and how you frame the problem. When you hear people from Washington or even the book, different people, NGOs, the way it's framed, it's framed as if child labor is an intentional operation where you have adults, where you have Chinese companies and those mining companies coming to houses, taking child labor. They come and you walk in the mines. And we want you to walk in the mines as if they were like slaves. And I even the book talks about about modern slavery as like as if it was the case but when you put in the context of how child labors happen how the social and economic situation happen in those countries we are talking about a poor dysfunctional failed state country with so many social problems so many social unrest you cannot take it and analyze child labor in the same context of having as if you are talking about modern slavery of course when now you take the case of the US where you have a very functional democracy, very strong institution, very everything is put in place, but yet you have the same situation happening there. It puts everything in perspective to say, okay, how should I be approaching this? What should I be my tone? How should I treat the question? I think the problem in Washington when they talk about those child laborers in cobalt in DRC, it has too much political and geopolitical agenda behind that we tend to remove the nuance, we tend to remove the context, we say we don't need the nuance, we don't need the context, we need a very simple narrative. We have China and we have child laborers and we have cobalt and we connect the both of them and say the Chinese are forcing child laborers in DRC with cobalt. And this is for me the problem because when you frame it like this, you're not solving the problem. You are not addressing the real root cause of the problem. You don't do that. You just platter the problem on the ground, say, yeah, this is a Chinese problem. This is the cobalt problem. And we have to leave it. We have to go. We, you have to put that in context to understand. And this is my problem on that issue. Sorry to being so sensitive on that, but I really just don't like the geopolitical narrative behind all that. 
And Gerard, just I just wanted to check the artisanal cobalt mining sector in in, in the DRC. Like you know, in in the hearings, there was this allegation that all of that cobalt goes goes to China. Do we have confirmation for that? Is it because my impression was that 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 kind of artisanal mining that there are brokers that kind of that sell that the 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 cobalt you know kind of dug up by those artisanal miners on to a variety of international buyers. Yes, you. Have- so I just wanted to double check that with you. Exactly. I'm even conducting a research on that. The results are going to come up later. But yes, you have a variety of players. You have Chinese, you have Lebanese, you have Pakistanis, you have Indians. You have a variety of players that really come, those intermediaries buying cobalt from the artisanal mines. And even interesting, you have one of the biggest artisanal mines is, is on a Glencore run operation, Glencore. But when you talk about shared labors, you won't find many people mentioning like, you know, the biggest artisanal mine is on a, on a Glencore site. But since it's so much politicized, the, the, the question is too much politicized, it's, it's going to be put under the Chinese spectrum and everything without really solving the issue. But yes, you have a large, you have a very wide range of actors buying the, those artisanal cobalt, even though a lot of them are Chinese as well. Kobus, the Siddharth Kara book, which I'll admit at first I didn't think I was going to like because I'd heard a lot of negative things about it. I'm about halfway through with it, and it's very interesting. There are some problems with it, no doubt, especially when they talk about the Chinese. But the part that I like the most is that you really can't segregate the artisanal mined cobalt from the industrial mined cobalt because it gets mixed into this sludge of, you know, you can't separate it. It's just all mixed together. And so some of it goes to China, some of it goes to other countries for processing. And But at the end of the day, the cobalt that we all use in our phones, in our cars, in our you know electric calculators, all of the lithium-ion batteries, according to Siddharth Kara in his research, is it does contain some element of or some percentage of the artisanally mined cobalt that was touched by either slave labor or children or just working conditions that are horrific. So in some ways, we are all complicit about this. And the other thing that I liked about the book is that he puts the blame squarely at the electronics industry and at the West that does not control their supply chains. That his point was there is no one on the ground monitoring the supply chains. They're looking the other way. And this, again, as somebody who's lived in Asia now for you know decades, this is what we've seen out of the supply chains on the stuff coming out of China and now coming out of Southeast Asia. The consumer at Walmart doesn't want to pay more than 99 cents for a shirt. At the end of the day, they're not really that interested in ethical supply chains because that would force the costs up dramatically. So I think it's a little bit disingenuous of Chris Smith and a lot of these guys who talk up a good game. But at the end of the day, eh, you know, Giro, one of the points that you and I talked about earlier this week was the fact that those comments from the U.S. State Department officials at the mining in Daba that we featured where they said, we want the Congo's resources to be the Congo's. And I said, you know, and and we saw a statistic that said there's an estimated $24 trillion worth of resources buried in the ground of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I don't believe for a second that at the end of the day, if Congo was a functioning country that was worth $24 trillion, that the Americans would really like that because they would be a superpower the likes we've never seen before. And we've seen when countries like Saudi Arabia and UAE express themselves in, you know, contrary to what the United States wants and what Europe wants. And boy, that pisses them off. 
So I'm not I'm not sure we should believe the Americans when they say we want the resources in, of Congo to really be 100 percent for the Congolese. And at the end of the day, we have to remember that nobody benefits when Congo is strong. Everybody tears this country down from the Rwandans to the Ugandans to the Americans, everybody. This is the giant that can never, never rise because they know that if they rise, they'll destroy everybody in terms of power. And they, it's just it's tragic. Yeah, even the markets. When you look, when you read different risk assessment of cobalt market, they tend to tell you in terms of uh, critical minerals that they are more afraid the fact by the fact that there might be a surge of resource nationalism. The fact that the countries, the producing country, understanding the value the, of the resource, they were gonna decide that we want to hold more of those natural resources. We want to be in control, and that idea is perceived by many experts as a risk to the stability of the international markets. So when they say that you're like, guys, if today Congo stand up and Jacob I mean, says, you know, guys, from today I'm going to nationalize all the cobalt mine, you're going to be the first one to stand and say, hell no, that's not going to happen. But yes, but when, you, when it's good for politics to say, yes, we want the mine to be for Congolese, they're going to say that. But in truth, they say, we want you to just get rid of the people that we don't like. As long as you sell to us, that's okay. So one final note on all of this, the, by the way, the price of cobalt and lithium has been following quite a bit this year because there is an abundant supply in the market. Also, the Haina battery company just tested out the first sodium ion battery that does not use either cobalt or lithium. So we may be in a situation in a couple of years, not too far, where automakers go, you know what, the Congo is just too messy. We got to move on. And these are also LFP batteries. These are lithium ion batteries that also don't use cobalt. So there is a chance that when it comes to at least the automotive sector, they may find alternatives to cobalt. But cobalt will still be absolutely essential in electronics, in aviation. So that's not going anywhere. So the Congo will be front and center. Let's get final reflections, Kobus, from you on these hearings in Washington and the tone of these committees and the fact that China now is really the only issue that I can think of, and there really aren't any others, that unite the MAGA wing of the Republican Party with the traditional Republican wing of the Republican Party, the AOC wing of the Democratic Party, the progressives, and then the Biden wing. Everybody agrees that China sucks in Washington. There's no daylight in anybody's position on this. The question now is, who can kind of scream the loudest that China sucks the most, okay? So that's where we are today in the United States. As somebody sitting in South Africa, looking at this debate and this discourse in the United States, what are you thinking? Well, you know, I think it's it's troubling, actually. You know, simply, there's, look, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of problems with China and the world, obviously. But the kind of how rampant the misinformation has been in these, in these hearings, as you say, these kind of like 10-year-old talking points that weren't even 100% true 10 years ago, like just being presented as facts, you know, that, that, that I find problematic. And with it, the kind of general drumbeat that one sees both in, in Washington and in Beijing, this kind of idea that that some kind of armed conflict is inevitable between the two very bad news. Like, you know, kind of as as, as we remember from, you know, for like as old people, we remember from, from after 9-11, like, you know, once that drumbeat really takes hold, it's very difficult to dislodge. You know, at, at the moment, everyone finds kind of anti-Chinaism extremely 
extremely convenient for a bunch of different reasons you know kind of like everyone can spin it in their own direction and similarly in you know kind of in china kind of accusing the west of everything like accusing the west of of, of essentially every single possible kind of like causing every single possible t- problem that that is facing china is also becoming a, a kind of a drumbeat of its own um you know and and the way that that then impacts on asian americans the way that it impacts on foreigners in china the way that it impacts on the entire global south who is all being kind of pulled pulled and pushed in different directions in order to to fit into this kind of scheme it's it's bad news. You know, kind of, I think it's bad news for everyone. Okay, we're going to leave on a bad, down, sour. Now, we try to always leave on an upbeat note, but we're running out of time and I want to get us out of here before an hour. Listen, these are the kinds of stories that we deep dive in literally every day. So if you're following China in the world, in Africa specifically, uh, the analysis of Giraud and Cobus is absolutely essential in your daily digest of reading. So we produce a daily report that goes out at 6 a.m. Washington time called the China Global South Daily Brief. It goes out to our subscribers. If you'd like to find out more about what you get in the subscription, which includes all of our archives, podcast transcripts, the daily brief, and, uh, you know, and just the ability to hang out with us, you know, we're going to start doing calls, uh, you know, once or twice a quarter as well with our subscribers. Uh, go to ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. You're, you're supporting a team of Asian, African, and Middle Eastern independent journalists. Independent journalism today is more important than ever, especially when you hear those committees hearings in Washington and you see how much bad information is, is floating around. In Africa, there is so much incomplete and bad information about China floating around. And the Chinese themselves you know, just we go through all the Chinese media and it feels like I'm watching just this parallel universe of information. So that's why the work that these guys and this team is doing is so important. And we hope that you would consider supporting us through a subscription. Once again, ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. We really appreciate your support. Also, Giraud is managing our Patreon community at Patreon.com slash Project. And he is the guy you'll talk to when there. So we'd love for you to support our Patreon community. The link is in the show notes. We'll also put links to some of the articles that we talked about on some of these issues on the show notes on the website. So you can find all of those that are there. So for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, for Jeronima in Mauritius, I'm Eric Olander out here in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Thank you so much for listening. We'll all be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrique on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>